Hey guys, so um, this is intended to be a quick download to get us all on the same page um, around um, some of the topics that we were discussing around uh, music and theology and music and things of that nature. Um, it could turn into a broader discussion, but we're going to try and keep it as focused as possible. Um, I figured a, a podcast would be easy. Everybody can listen to it on their phones as they're driving uh, or whatnot. So I wanted to make it as accessible to you guys as possible and to break it up into small sections so that um, if you need to pause it and come back to it, that would work fine for continuity. Um, so the four big uh, movements that we're going to be examining uh, right now are Bethel, Jesus Culture, Elevation, and Hillsong. Um, so I, I'm not going to qualify them so much as churches um, and more than as movements. Um, they, of course, originated in churches uh, with particular pastors and things like that, but it's definitely graduated into full-blown movements. Um, I would even venture to say that they're the fastest growing movements in Christianity today. Um, all of them are using um, pop music, pop Christian music, um, what I would consider industry music, to infiltrate churches and, and things of that nature. And we'll kind of go into why I'm using the word infiltrate as well. So um, those are the, the big four that we're going to be looking at. So the first one we're going to look at is Bethel Church. Um, this is a church that originated in Redding, California uh, with Bill Johnson uh, back in 1952. Um, the big, uh, amongst a lot of different things, but the big issue that we have with um, the Bethel Church is the preaching of what we would consider the prosperity gospel. In a nutshell, um, the prosperity gospel teaches that um, we have uh, the same power as Jesus Christ did on earth that Jesus uh, divested himself of his divinity. So he was no longer God. He was all human. He was all man. And the implication of that is that we, as um, men and women, have the same power that Jesus had, specifically around miracles, uh, miracles, prophecy, etc. Um, and if we don't have the ability to perform these miracles, the reason behind that inability is due to sin or lack of faith or um, especially in Bethel a lack of training um, and so that that is what is in a nutshell the prosperity gospel um, sometimes it can involve money where uh, you know Bill Johnson especially was big on you know look at my life and the money that I have and the reason that I have these things is that I have align myself with Jesus in his humanity and have copied my life after Jesus in his humanity. And because Jesus was no longer God on earth, we all have the capability to do this, right? Um, it also infiltrates into things like health. Um, if you are sick, uh, it's because you have sin in your life or because you don't have enough faith or because you need some sort of intervention and healing on your behalf. So, um, in a nutshell, that is where Bethel um, really struggles. Bethel music um, has really exploded. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in concerts, it's on both of the Christian channels right now. Uh, you know, Erwan and Caleb both uh, play a lot of Bethel music. Um, many of the songs are um, theologically accurate, um, but also many of the songs are theologically shallow what we would consider, um, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend music. So the idea that um, oftentimes God and Jesus aren't even mentioned by name in the music. You could easily hear a song on a secular radio station and be 
completely convinced that it was just somebody writing a song to um, to a lover or to a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or something of that nature. So um, this has been a struggle for many, many years, even before Bethel really hit the scene. But um, Bethel has been really big on this. Some of the other uh, concerning aspects around the Bethel Church um, is the, the use of tarot cards and prophetic art uh, when attempting to, to prophesy. Bethel Church has set up a school um, of ministry. Uh, I refer to it as the Bethel Hogwarts uh, College, uh, wherein they, they believe that, that prophecy and, and, things, and healing and things of that nature can be um, taught and practiced. Um, I've had several interactions with people that have come out of the Bethel movement uh, where they have come up and prophesied uh, and claimed uh, certain truths over people who, in this particular instance, were struggling to get pregnant and have had a lot of miscarriages. And they um, prophesied over this person and claimed truth that they, the person would get pregnant and it would be a successful pregnancy, um, which it wasn't. Um, you know, they had a... Um, you know, the pregnancy didn't work out. And so I came and asked the person, well, so was it you that was wrong or was it God that was wrong? Um, and they said, well, you know, prophecy is a practice. It's something that you have to get good at, just like preaching. So you need to practice it and you don't always get it right. And the struggle that I have with that is that, you know, by definition, prophecy is words from God. It was given to man for other um, people to, to hear and experience. And um, in that particular case, uh, I think, false prophecy is very serious. Um, when you're claiming that God has said something to you that you need to say to other people, and what you believe God said was is not actually something that God was said, you are by definition a false prophet. And biblically speaking and culturally speaking, those people were dragged out on the streets and stoned and killed uh, to, to get them out of circulation. And um, so I think it's a very dangerous uh, practice um, you know, if you think that you need practice in prophesying and, and figuring out what God is saying, um, you know, so I, I see a lot of danger in that. Um, tarot cards, I think that is a really slippery slope. Prophetic art, again, it's the same kind of deal that um, it's a pretty heavy responsibility when you're claiming to have been spoken to by God and are relaying that information to somebody who needs to hear it. Um, so that is definitely a concern that Bethel has. They also do some some strange things like grave soaking, where they believe that, um, you know, if a church leader has passed away that has received some sort of anointing from God, that you can lay on top of their grave and soak up whatever anointing that they have. And um, some of the folks that I've talked to from Bethel have denied that, um, but it, it's well documented. It's well recorded. And it's certainly something that happens, and at least in the core of um, the Bethel Church, the original Bethel Church. So um, these sorts of things happen. They, they do these big, huge um, spiritual fairs wherein they have tents and people can come in and have their, um, they're basically their futures told um, by tarot cards. And what they're considering that is um, an exercise in prophecy. And, um, you know, this is something that these folks learn in this college that has been set up by Bethel. So some definitely some strange practices um, that uh, I struggle in finding any sort of biblical support for, and I, I find a lot of biblical support against. So um, at the core, this is where, where Bethel is. Um, next, we'll talk about Hillsong. All right, so Hillsong is a little bit less direct than Bethel. Um, they were established back in the um, late 70s. 
uh, in Australia, um, definitely part of the charismatic movement that was very popular then and, and certainly is now as well. Um, they have been plagued um, almost from day one by um, major moral issues within their leadership. So a lot of um, infidelity within leadership um, that have surfaced, um, abuse, things of that nature. Um, they too are also part of the prosperity gospel that we discussed earlier. Um, they have most recently aligned themselves with Bethel in, in the movement that is happening there. Um, and they are part of what we're going to call the NAR, N-A-R, uh, New Apostolic Ref uh, Reformation. New Apostolic Reformation. This is really important um, because um, the concept of new apostles uh, goes directly against what um, the Bible teaches. None of these people have um, seen the incarnate Christ have walked with him um, or any of that nature. And that alone uh, really disqualifies somebody from being an apostle. Um, and really the, the whole goal of being a new apostle in this reformation is the signs and wonders. It's the healings and the prophecy and the signs and the wonders and speaking words of truth um, and essentially um, gaining uh, success in whatever that is defined by you, whether that is health or money or respect um, or, you know, family success, business, whatever that is that's going to benefit you the most, um, which is why it's so appealing. Um, you know, who wouldn't want these things? And if you give them a recipe uh, for what I call a butler Jesus, <laughs> that if you ask enough and nice enough and with enough force and with enough truth and with enough belief, if you just believe enough, um, then Jesus is compelled to give you what it is that your heart desires. Um, and, you know, again, that's what the colleges were set up for, was to teach you how to have that much faith and how to speak those words of truth and um, so that you can get what it is that your heart desires or that you can give to others what it is their heart desires. Um, so Hillsong is definitely a part of this. Um, they're best known for the record label. Um, they have some, I would fully admit, some really amazing um, industry music, Christian industry music. Um, it's catchy. It's awesome. Um, I mean, we have local concerts here all the time. We've sung their songs in our church plenty of times. Um, but there's certainly, in, in a lot of them, there's some theological issues that we can take. Um, there's theological shallowness that could be could be an issue in um, corporate worship. Um, you know, maybe not per se in day-to-day, -day, um, you know, devotional worship in your car on the way to work or something like that. But corporate worship, I feel, is a, a slightly different issue um, that will attack later. So uh, next we'll be talking about Jesus culture. All right. So Jesus culture uh, was a youth offshoot of Bethel in Redding, California, um, started by a, a youth pastor by the name of Banning Schulter. Um, and it was um, essentially a youth group movement. Um, they since moved to Sacramento, I believe. Um, and they're best known for the record label, which is Jesus Culture. Um, they sing a lot of re very recognizable songs. The one off the top of my head is um, uh, is uh, Unstoppable Love, which I think we've sung in our church. Um, again, um, because they're tied in with uh, Bethel and what they're doing, um, a lot of their theology is definitely prosperity gospel. Um, they're very, very uh, into the, the uh, funneling youth into the, the college that Bethel has started there of ministry, the school of ministry. Um, their worship songs 
again, some of them are really awesome and catchy and great. Um, there's certainly some theological issues in a lot of them, some depth uh, issues in a lot of them, singability issues we'll go into later. But um, from a theological standpoint, again, it's prosperity gospel. It is um, word of truth, uh, things that we have kind of previously discussed that um, they're very popular right now and they're very controversial right now in that, um, you know, from a biblical standpoint, uh, it's argumentable, argu arguable, sorry, it's arguable whether a lot of these things are something that is still prevalent in the church ages that we're in right now, or even I would consider this a post-church age that we're living in right now. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they take these evidences of salvation to be, uh, you know, things like speaking in tongues and performing miracles and things of that nature. So, um, again, this is uh, part of the Bethel movement that's going on next we will be talking about the elevation movement all right so elevation is um the movement that i've been most recently researching it started in the southern baptist convention um, and has gained a lot of traction a lot of popularity on the west coast over here um, it's primarily led by a man named stephen furtick very gifted speaker. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there on YouTube. Boy, if you if you do a quick search on him, you're going to find some very angry people um, that just really spew a lot of hate against him. Um, that was my experience anyway. And so I, I decided to really dig in and listen to this guy to give him a fair chance from a um, really neutral standpoint. Um, I found him to be very entertaining. He's very exciting to listen to. Um, he is certainly prosperity gospel, 100%. Um, he's also very um, into modalism, which is also kind of a Bethel movement piece. Um, though he's not, he at least wasn't originally part of the Bethel movement, though I would consider uh, Elevation Church part of the New Apostolic Reformation as well. All four of these, I believe, are. Um, but yeah, Stephen Furtick, um, modalism, the idea that um, God did not exist in three forms simultaneously, that he was, he moved from one mode to the other. And when he specifically, the one that we um, are taking issue with uh, currently is the, the concept of Jesus divesting himself of his deity and becoming 100% man. And the implications that we discussed earlier that um, as a man and as we are men and women, then we have the same abilities that he did as a man on earth performing these sorts of things. In fact, they even go to um, the extreme of saying that we have the responsibility uh, to perform these things just as Jesus did. And if we are not, then we're not reaching our full potential as children of God. Um, so and there's a lot of pretty serious stuff that is implied by statements like that too. Um, so Stephen Furtick, um, it's very, uh, I would say it's a very narcissistic theology. Um, you know, you guys heard me mention in church a while ago of the idea of narcissus. So he, he reads himself and he reads his church and followers into the biblical text rather than reading the biblical text and pulling truths out that are applicable today. He will read himself into the text and apply those texts um, directly to himself. And it, it, it is a fine line. It's a, a kind of a difficult um, thing to pull out um, and, and determine whether or not it's ex good exegesis or, or faulty narcissus. But the concept being that um, everything read in the Bible um, really should be washed through cultural revel relevance um, as well as you know, who, who the letter was written to, the church, the issues that they were doing, and then um, applied to your life at that point, rather than um, you being the 
direct recipient of whatever was written there um, and taking that um, very literally. So uh, it's definitely something that he does. Um, he, again, he's a talented speaker. I, I feel like he, he's very dangerous in that um, he, uh, he claims to have a lot of power um, that uh, I certainly don't have. Um, a lot of it is due to, you know, the success uh, theology that he has that, um, you know, as long as he is tapped in to, um, to the life of Jesus, then he's able to tap into these powers and these benefits that if you're not uh, tapped into Jesus, then you're not going to have access to. So um, it's, again, prosperity gospel. Um, it's super appealing to the youth of today. Uh, in fact, I think either just recently or just coming up very soon, there's an Elevation um, concert at the Matthew Knight Theater, and Stephen Furtick will be there. Um, First Baptist is going. They're taking a big group. Um, I think uh, River Road might be taking a group to this. So I feel like this is probably the, the most, um, a lot of his stuff would pass muster, so to speak, from a theological standpoint. Um, but a lot of his stuff is also um, very against muster. It doesn't doesn't check out. Um, and I think that is the, the danger. That is why yeast gets into bread is because um, it does a lot of good. Um, but in the end, it, it really destroys and rots. So, um, you know, th that is Stephen Furtick and Elevation. Um, Kind of there for you. A lot of the songs are um, sung in churches, a lot of the songs are on the radio, um, and a, a lot of the songs are theologically sound, and a lot of the songs are not, um, and have some theological depth issues. So um, those are the four big movements um, that I want to catch everybody up on. Uh, the next piece we're going to talk about is um, really, what do we do with this? Um, is this something that we need to be concerned with in, in our church? Is this something that we need to guard against as shepherds? Um, are these churches, are these movements, um, wolves at the gate that we need to protect from getting into, you know, into the sheep? Um, are we being legalistic about it? So we're going to discuss that a little bit. And then finally, we will go into the music, um, whether or not this is something that we need to, to address. How serious do we need to address it? Is it something that we can come to some sort of um, compromise on or is this something that we need to take a, a hard look at so um, that's coming up next Alrighty, so i'm hoping that we have established a firm foundation on um, some of the core issues that we need to take uh, with these four particular movements um, you know largely based on their core theology um, as well as some of their uh, more odd behaviors around uh, their core theology of uh, prosperity gospel. So um, yeah, there's all sorts of things that you can research on your own, but these are kind of the, the real core issues with the movements. Now, the, the question I think that becomes more relevant is, you know, what do we do with this, right? So whenever, you know, I, I look at something and study it, uh, the question is, is how now shall we live, right? What do we do with the information that we've just received? And um, seeing as we can identify these movements as problematic, um, certainly not something that we could suggest um, a new believer, or even um, a more mature believer to really dig into deeply. Um, then what do we do with um, the music that comes out of this particular movement? So I'm going to refer you guys to the, um, to the music hierarchy, um, and I'm going to attach that uh, as well to, um, to the church center app and so that you guys can take a look at that i passed it out of the last meeting but um so i'm going to refer to that you know the at the bottom in the larger uh circle of the venn diagram there you got secular music music 
including including some of the crossover stuff. Um, you know, in the the you know late '90s, early 2000s, you had things like Sixpence None the Richer. You had P.O.D. Um, some of the more popular bands that um, really were spanning the um, the industry between secular music radio stations um, and albums. Um, and also kind of getting more into the Christian side of things, too. Um, a lot of their songs that were true crossover songs were very ambiguous, um, didn't refer to um, God, especially in, in a de- deity sense, um, you know, weren't even truly relational, a lot of narcissism and how um, these things affected and made them feel very feeling-based. So, you know, I really feel like a lot of that crossover music can be considered um, in the secular sense. Then you have the next bubble up, the next diagram up, where you have the Christian music industry, okay? Um, here we have high levels of narcissism. It's my life, my faith, my problems, my response to my problems, even my response to God. Um, you have fairly low corporate singability, um, where it's it's very concert-oriented, um, very entertaining, upbeat, it's awesome, it's fun, um, very evocative, but um, difficult to sing which becomes an issue um, when you're looking at corporate worship particularly. So that's the Christian music industry. Um, and we'll, next we'll address the Christian music ministry. Um, and this is something I've created to help my mind wrap around how to, how to deal with this. So there's no uh, proven science to this, so just bear with me. Uh, Christian music ministry, I consider uh, music that's theologically accurate. It can still be very entertaining. It might tell a story. It could be very relational. Um, it has minimal or maybe balanced narcissistic tendencies. Um, so you still might be addressing a relationship with God and how it affects you, but it's more balanced with um, addressing God and who he is and ascribing worth uh, to him. Um, it has probably lower corporate singability, but you can still sing it if you understand your audience well. Um, and this is an audience that um, could typically follow along and, and actually sing with upbeat music um, to where it doesn't become strictly concert style where uh, you can't hear yourself sing and you can't really sing along because it's going so quickly. But um, if you have an audience that can do uh, Christian music ministry, there might be some crossover between that and um corporate praise and worship sort of thing. So th- that's the, the final bubble at the top, the diagram there, corporate praise and worship. Um, I feel like it needs to be God-centered and God-addressed, that it is almost completely non-narcissistic. Um, in parentheses, it's about God, not about me, right? Um, and that's going to be a real hang-up on a lot of the more pop Christian worship music. Um, and I say that with air quotes, right? Um, theologically accurate, and I think just as importantly, but more overlooked, I think that needs to be theologically rich. Um, you know, there may be some rub with some of the more repetitive songs or some of the songs that, uh, um, you know, are a little bit more emotionally focused, um, but that's definitely part of it. Um, and I feel like it should have a high corporate singability that um, this is something that can be digested and participated in. Uh, from the pulpit for the entire church. Um, you know, so again, there, there's intended to be a lot of crossover and bleed through on some of these um, bubbles, but I also feel like there may be some hard lines um, between them. And that's what we're going to kind of address next. All right, so here's the meat of the issue. Okay, this is on the table 
ready to be uh, looked at by everybody. And I, I, what I really want to do is um, offer it up uh, for discussion rather than try and convince folks one way or another. Um, largely due to the fact that I am still working through how to process this myself. Um, I know I, ha I have leanings and tendencies on how I would like to deal with this, but I, what I really want to do is um, to make logical steps towards some sort of group corporate decision around this uh, for the church, uh, starting with the leadership. Um, and that may include and probably will include compromise, um, certainly looking at the issues from a lot of different perspectives. So uh, without further ado, here it is. Um, so part of the argument is that if we have a high um, expectation of theological standard and theological purity from the pulpit. Um, so if I were to preach a message, um, everybody's listening and hopefully analyzing the things that I'm saying, um, running them through the filters of scripture, running through the filter of um, culture and the, the people groups that this was written to in the Bible, um, any uh, extra scriptural uh, text that I might use should be equally scrutinized and to make sure that they match up with what we know about the Bible and, and good sound theology and exegesis. So if we have those high expectations for what is preached uh, from the pulpit, should we not also have similar expectations from the music that is sung especially in front of the church? Right. Same, same stage, same pulpit, same people. Um, and I think there may even be, um, uh, if not an equal, maybe even a higher importance to this because songs are very meditative. Um, messages should be, too. <laughs> but where people, um, you know, I know songs pop into my head all the time. You know, there have been times uh, that have been really rough in my life where. Uh, you know, Christian music and songs and stuff have gotten me through stuff uh, where, you know, it wasn't um, a great message that had been preached and I was listening to it that popped in my head. It was a song, right? So it's very meditative. So it comes into our head all the time. So the, uh, the high level of filtration that we use for theology um, and doctrine from the pulpit, I really feel like needs to be applied to songs. The question is, what do we do with the stuff that isn't perfect, um, that doesn't uh, completely fit in with the puzzle piece, the empty puzzle piece of, of theology. Um, what do we do with it? Do we throw it away? Um, we also, you know, consider the source. What if, you know, the, the source of a really good, theologically deep and accurate song, what if the source is bad, right? I, I heard it put this way. What if, um, and it would never happen, but what if Planned Parenthood came out with a Christian music album? Let's say that nine out of 10 of the songs on the album were great, that they were theologically accurate, they passed muster, they um, met all the filtration, they met all of the, the standards of theology, it was great. Um, could, we, could we sing these songs from the pulpit, knowing that they came from Planned Parenthood, knowing that some or all of the money that we pay in royalty to be able to sing these songs goes towards infanticide, right? Um, could we could we do this in good conscience um, by the same token? Right. And this is the struggle. Um, a lot of the um, what we would consider really theologically deep historic Christian music comes from somewhat sketchy background. Right. Um, for instance, the song It Is Well With My Soul, the person, the man that uh, wrote that song um, does does not or did not have a lot of the same theological viewpoints that I did. OK, um, I believe he was Protestant. 
Um, you know, the story's really amazing. If you have time to look it up, it's one of my favorites. But um, the song has ministered to me in so many ways, right? But um, he, if he and I were sitting at a, a table over dinner, we'd, we'd have some pretty heated discussions over what our theology comparisons were. Do I feel at peace with singing that song in the front of the church? I do. I really do. So we have two conflicting viewpoints, at least two conflicting viewpoints, probably more. Um, but those are the, the two big ones for the moment. Um, the source, what do we do with the source, right? And so I'm offering that up for discussion. Um, you know, Michael had a really great point in that, um, you know, if I had listened to a Stephen Furtick message and I pulled out some nuggets of truth and then I turned around and preached it for the, the kids and I, I made it my own, right? I put my own twist on it. Um, does that mean that just because the source of the information is less than uh, reputable, do I, does that mean my, uh, my message becomes non-reputable? Does, does it mean it's garbage because where I got it from was garbage, so to speak? Um, so, you know, I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, I think it's, it's a complicated issue and I, I, some, something that I want the group to really chew on, right? Um, I do think that um, I feel comfortable drawing the line around theology. If the song has theological inaccuracies with it, it, to me it doesn't matter where the source is. I don't think that that song should be sung from the pulpit. Um, I, I feel okay listening to that song on K-Love or Air One, right? Um, you know, I, I watch secular movies from time to time. Um, you know, the, the Top Gun movie that came out, was a secular movie, right? So for entertainment purposes, um, I feel like that's one particular argument. Um, you know, even if we look at Christian music industry, you know, again, there could be some theological accuracies. It's mostly entertainment value. It's um, slightly better than secular music. I would even feel comfortable pushing youth towards, you know, the transition from secular to Christian music, industry music. And then hopefully as they grow, uh, start pushing them towards Christian music ministry section where the theology is a little bit better, um, where the messages are, they're a little bit deeper and more wholesome and um, things of that nature. Um, what it really, I think where the rub is, is what do we do with the corporate praise and worship piece? where the theology from the pulpit is being sung. Um, I really, I feel like that is the rub. And so, you know, where, where I'm, I'm kind of taking this is that I'm, I'm not really willing to throw all the babies out with the bathwater, where, um, you know, if it's, if it's sung by Hillsong, Bethel, Jesus Culture, or Elevation, then um, we, we shouldn't listen to it on the radio. We got to dump it. Or, you know, we, I got to take it off of my iPhone because it's garbage. Um, you know, I feel like there's entertainment value, that there's some wholesomeness to it. Um, perhaps as I grow as a Christian, um, I can, you know, start to mature away from some of the stuff that's a little bit more theologically shallow. Um, but again, you know, there's some uh, entertainment value to it. And it's certainly better than uh, having a diet, so to speak, of only Christian music or oh, sorry, only secular music, um, you know, and that's where I've been pushing the teenagers is that, you know, we got to look at it as a diet. If we have garbage, only garbage coming in, we're going to have only garbage coming out, right? But I do feel like the standard for uh, corporate praise and worship, what we sing from the stage, um, has should have a tighter filter. Um, and so what do we do with the songs where the source is questionable? Um, what do we do with the songs where it may not be as theologically deep and rich? What do we do with the songs that have less singability? You know, are we truly considering our audience? Um, 
you know, and have we asked some of the older generation in our audience? Uh, have we asked some of the younger? You know, some of the teens have let me know that they kind of miss some of the hymns, right? Amazing Grace. We sing that on the, the youth um, retreat that we did, and the kids loved it. And they're like, why don't we sing this in church anymore? And, you know, my answer was, well, we do sometimes. But they, they wanted more of that, the, the richness and um, that, so to speak. So maybe the variance in diet. So the questions that I want to propose for you as a staff Okay, to, to wrap this up and to put a, a bow on it, is that I would like us to consider what do we do with um, Christian music that has questionable source? Okay, that is the first question. Um, and look at it through the lens of the hierarchy, right? Um, is it industry music? Is it ministry music? Is it corporate praise and worship music? Then what do we do with the music that has questionable theology? Okay. Where does it fit in with that hierarchy? Where should it fit in with that hierarchy? Right. And then um, what do we do with music that may be not as theologically rich? Um, where does it fit in with that hierarchy? Is there some sort of balance to the diet of praise and worship that we do with the church? Um, you know, and that sort of thing. I am not going to pretend that this is an easy conversation. I'm not going to pretend that whatsoever, even for me. Uh, you know, I look at a lot of the songs that I grew up with that I really enjoy um, as corporate praise and worship. And um, to be honest with you, a lot of them don't pass the filters um, that I'm looking at here. And I certainly feel convicted around it. Um, you know, and again, the, the goal of this conversation is not to convince you guys one way or another. I may have taken that a little bit further than I wanted to, but um, really my goal, and this is the honest truth, is for us to come to um, an educated um, and God-seeking decision around this that we can move forward as a staff and eventually as an elder board and as a leadership group in saying this is what we stand for, this is the um, you know, the standard in, by which we hold our, our praise and worship, that it's a similar standard that we hold our, um, you know, theology from the pulpit, um, you know, and, and for us to really have a strong stance that I can come to somebody that says um, one of two things, whether they're like, well, we, we love all this Bethel and Hillsong music, we feel like it's really good, um, we should keep it, we should sing more of it, how do we deal with that comment, or um, the person on the other side, which I've met several uh, within our church who think, we got to ditch it all. Um, anything that has that record label on it is evil and it's yeast in the church and it's how they get in and it's how they steal our youth. Um, so how do we deal with that? Um, and unless we become unified as a staff first um, and as a leadership group second and finally roll it out to the rest of the church, um, I really feel like we're doing a disservice um, to, to how we lead this. Um, so please prayerfully consider all this information um, please feel free to disagree with any of it and definitely do some research on your own. There's a lot out there. I, I will warn you it is. Um, you'll have to put on your waders because there's a lot to wade through and there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of anger um, out there around this as well. So thank you for listening and uh, I look forward to this conversation. I really do. Um, and hopefully I can keep my own passion in check and <laughs> be open-minded and reasonable. All right, you guys, God bless. Take care.